in Living Hope Wheelchair Association, where I work right now, we work with and organize immigrants that are in wheelchairs with spinal cord injuries. So when you ask this question of Tropical Storm Imelda last week, there's a countywide meeting dealing with disaster recovery. And I asked, it was a simple question. Everything is geared towards homeowners, right? But there's more people that rent than own in Houston. Most of our, our members live in trailers. Renters are being left out of the recovery from all these disasters. Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. So Marcy, I'm really excited to have our guest today. It's Tomas Aguilar. And I met Tomas, who now lives in Texas, but he was living in Boston as an organizer. But his his story is really rich because he started off as the son of a of a migrant worker and uh, worked low wage jobs for many many years, including fast food restaurants, and was treated like crap as though he were an immigrant, even though he was actually a citizen of this country. He had a really interesting story uh, about his transition from fast food worker to um, social justice organizer. And what was really interesting is, you know, I've, I've sort of known that he's had this passion for technology, and he describes this connection between his real passion for people not being excluded, just as he was treated when he was a fast food worker, this desire for justice and inclusion and people being at the table with also people being at the table when it comes to technology, people being at the table if they are living in wheelchairs. So he um, captures a lot of really interesting stories and, and themes. We spoke with Tomas on the phone. He was in Houston, Texas, where he lives and works. But right after a tropical storm, which he talks about, but imagine the context of working with people in wheelchairs right after a tropical storm has hit. Tomas, we're especially grateful that you're here with us today because you're right in the midst of another terrible storm in Houston. Tell us how you're doing. Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. Right now, we have severe weather warnings. For some context, it's expected to be after the 2020 census, the third largest city in America. We're also a city that has a population of over a million immigrants, estimations to about 500,000 undocumented immigrants. So with that background, and we in Living Hope Wheelchair Association, where I work right now, we work with and organize immigrants that are in wheelchairs with spinal cord injuries. So when you ask this question of Tropical Storm Imelda, there's a lot of rain in certain areas. For those that depend on services like uh, paratransit, metro lift, as they call it here, it, it throws everything back. 
So any type of rain or flash flood warning really affects everything. Can you tell us a little more about um, your organization and why your organization exists? Yes, yes. Um, so Living Hope Wheelchair Association was started in 2005. So basically, there's budget cuts, and those budget cuts hit hard social services. One of the things that was cut was uh, the funding of the basic needs that someone that's just been paralyzed, workplace injuries, whatnot. You're there in the hospital, and whereas before you could get some allotments of catheters, adult diapers, gloves, things that you need for your daily survival, in 2005, those programs were all cut. So we were formed because some of the folks that were depending on that, that had been injured on the job, or they were victims of of violence, they didn't have anything. Imagine needing a catheter and not being able to have one. So a group of folks, um, they got together and they started doing things to raise money. It was pretty amazing. They started selling flowers on the street corners, holding raffles, right? Doing fundraisers with churches, completely grassroots. So they started that in 2005. And now we're about to have our 15-year-old, our quinceanera, as we call it. We're 14 years And now we have um, two small offices with some warehouses. Now we give out a variety of things. People come once a month, but more, more, in reality, every day we get a lot of people coming in. In addition to that, we also take donations of, for example, hospital beds, wheelchairs. So we get a lot what they call durable medical equipment. We clean it up and then we give it away. So can you give us a story about last month's uh, tropical storm Imelda? How did that affect the population that that you're working with in Houston? So the day started out, all the forecasts, they were saying the same thing. It's going to rain, but it shouldn't be that big of a deal. The worst has passed and all that. Well, they were all wrong and very wrong. So tropical storm Imelda, it was about 40 inches of rain. And that's a lot, right? There was catastrophic flooding in a lot of areas of the city. So even if you were safe in your office or where you were, trying to get to where you were going, going home or or anywhere else, that was almost impossible. There was flash flooding everywhere, you know, neighborhoods flooded. For a lot of people, it was a lot worse than Hurricane Harvey, right? Just the, the way it hit everyone. In our community, we had done a lot of work after Hurricane Harvey. We'd done a lot of visits, interviews, house visits, right? We worked on connecting people to aid, right? There was so much aid coming in from private sector, from government. So we worked really hard and trying to connect people to that aid and trying to educate ourselves and and prepare better. So by the time Hurricane, uh, well, Tropical Storm Imelda came about, a lot of our members, you know, they stayed put. They knew where to call. So the preparation was better. And because of that, um, we did have some stories, right? Some folks were affected, their houses, they sent us some photos and and they got flooded. So we're trying to help them 
to get aid, right? First apply FEMA and at the city and county levels and then take it from there. But I, I will say that um, most of our members were, were better prepared than when Hurricane Harvey hit. Can you tell us the story of your own background, your formative years? What led you down this path? Um, I was born in Laredo, Texas, but our family, we were migrant, what they call migrant farm workers, right? South Texas, mostly you go like to the Midwest and uh, sometimes like to Oregon and all that, but we would go to the Midwest. So one year we stayed up there. My father got a job. He left the he left the fields picking crops, um, beets, cucumbers, and all, to work in an auto factory because Korean War was happening and quote unquote, the men went to fight. So women and migrant workers were in the factories because they were unionized after the war. They couldn't just fire them, right? So for what it's worth, we had a, a an okay, not in poverty lifestyle because of my dad's job, which was unionized, right? Didn't make a lot of money, but made enough to for us to to support us, right? Then he he got sick, he had cancer. So we moved back to the border. I was in sixth grade to Laredo, Texas, very different world. My father passed away. So then my mom's raising seven of us, right? Throughout the years, now I look back, um, my mom was organizing, right? Environmental justice. We were breathing a lot of cement. We lived in a really bad neighborhood, cement factory, the dust in the neighborhood. My mom and other moms, would organize and they actually got that plant shut down because they didn't want to, you know, prevent the the cement from going into the neighborhood, the dust. Um, they did a few other things, projects. So I'm just like, that was in my household, my dad with the United Auto Workers and I remember them going on strike. He was always fighting for his rights to my mom doing that in the neighborhood. So when I started this social justice work, you know, I never thought of that. It wasn't until recently, like, man, I've been blind. That was in my own house. My mom, you know, raising seven of us and doing that, you know, and she did it. So I went to college, um, didn't graduate, moved to the East Coast. I was working a lot of jobs, minimum wage jobs. Right? One of them, I was delivering packages and I would deliver to United. They're called Share the Wealth back then. And I liked their their posters. And, and I like what they were doing, right? One day I was delivering and I talked to this woman, Betsy, Betsy Leander Wright, and she told me there was an opening that I should apply, bring my resume. I'm like, what's a resume? <laughs> I didn't know what a resume was. I'll help you. So she helped me and uh, I got the job. This was at United for a Fair Economy? Yeah, they later changed their name to United for a Fair Economy. So I'm like, wow. And I remember one thing and this talking about class, right? Like I'd never, I didn't know you're supposed to do this. She wanted me to negotiate my salary. And again, I was making like a dollar more than minimum wage before. I wasn't much in Boston. I'm like, anything more than that is going to be fine. And she's like, no, you have to, <laughs> I had no clue. You have to negotiate your salary and all that. So then I, I have this job, I have benefits and, you know, living wage. Um, and then from there I started, but what also and she really got it. Uh, I can't say anyone else did. She got it was she mentored me while I was there, learning communications work. Um, she took the time. We would regular meetings, and she would show me. 
Um, and you don't get that in a lot of places, right? Uh, so it was amazing. And from there, I just took off doing different jobs in, in this social justice field, right? So that's my thing and, and my my path, right? I was just working. I used to get fired a lot before. They call me the crusader sometimes. I'd be fired because I'd be working. I was working at a Kentucky Fried Chicken once in the back, and we were making the chicken. And I noticed, like, all the local kids um, that spoke English would always be talking bad about the immigrant workers, us in the back. I'm not an immigrant, but I look like one, I guess. I don't know. They assumed I was. <laughs> and then one day I answered them in, in English, and I told them off. I go, you know, and not too proper language. I told them off, and I got trouble. I got fired. They asked me why I did it. I'm like, well, they were being abusive. They were doing this and that. And then I, I didn't understand organizing. And then, you know, I, I should have remembered what my dad did. You know, the, he was in a union. You know, he didn't do it alone. All this stuff. I was just there, like, trying to defend myself and being called a crusader. But then I'd be fired, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting world, right? So I think back about that a lot. Now I understand, like, organizing, you can do things a lot better, you know. So can you share with us some of the challenges that your constituents face in a tropical storm or a hurricane and how how you were able to help them uh, specifically? I mean, yeah, I'll leave it at that. In January, we uh, we had collected some data, some stories. We, you know, we had evaluated a lot of what, what happened and what could we do better and and one thing that we really realized, and we kind of already knew this, um, we're just like applying it to this, is using this concept of pre-existing conditions in the medical field, right? Socially, when you talk about food insecurity, um, just basic inequality, a lot of communities are already living in disaster. When you can't feed your family and, you're, and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, somehow you make it, you know, and you stretch, you know, um, a small amount of food, you make it last a long time. You know, we hear the stories, you know, they're so resilient. For me, that's a caution. I'm like, why do we always have to be and, and make it a badge of honor to be resilient when a lot of these pre-existing conditions socially can be prevented, right? Why are we cutting um, nutrition programs, food stamps? We just keep cutting and cutting and cutting. So, what it looks like is a disaster. In this case, let's look at Harvey. It just illustrates and, and amplifies what's already there in communities. Lack of food, right? Substandard housing, food insecurity, all these different things are already there. So these hurricanes, the natural ones that, that we read about, they're really bad and they make things worse. Um, and it's basically highlighting what's already there. So for us, we're trying to provide direct services, which we do. And we're also trying to affect policy change, you know, the rules that govern our society. So we're, we're out there in the, you know, the Metro, that's the transportation agency here in Houston, Harris County, Metro. We're at those meetings with others advocating for better policies, right? That affect people without money, people with disabilities, et cetera. Uh, we're also at the county level, which is very important here in Texas, trying to advocating for better uh, policies based on equity and, 
and not just fall back on like cost sum analysis, right? Cost benefit analysis. You know, it's like we want to move beyond that. And let's look at it through a lens of equity. So we're trying to provide services as well as trying to change the rules, right? And throughout all that, groups like us and us, we're trying to build a leadership, right? While while someone may see a person in a wheelchair, for example, behind that person, they'll have a caregiver, someone taking care of them, their family. So there's a lot more people than just the person that you see, right? Of course, that doesn't apply to everyone. Some people are alone. A lot of people are alone. And and again, that's one of the roles that we try to provide at Living Hope is, you know, this is a place where everyone, especially them, they are welcome here. There's not too many places in society, if you think about it, where you can drop in, come by for your supplies, and, and you're just totally welcome because for the most part, we're run by people, you know, the founders all in wheelchairs with a disability. So um, we try to create those spaces where people can feel welcome and they can come and talk about their needs or about anything, really. Tomas, can you share with us a couple of examples of people in the program and how they became leaders, what sort of roles they took on? Our founders, Francisco Cedillo, um, Noé, Guillermo de la Rosa, these are individuals that were, again, they were the ones starting to, to sell things, to, to make money, to buy supplies, right? And the way they started, they all saw each other at those public hospitals. They tried to solve this problem, right? And I think they're doing a great job. Look at us now. But they were like, wait a minute, we need to survive. So they started doing those activities. What also happened is the leadership just started showing up, their, their talents, started uh, taking over. So Noe, Memo, as we, we call them, they would be at hospitals, right? They develop relationships with social workers, their nurses and stuff. Whenever someone with an injury like them, they would get notified. So then their leadership, they would like create teams of people to go and visit these newly injured individuals to, to show them that there's people out here that care, right? That they're not alone. Also, to give them information, this is what's going to happen to you. Your body's different, right? doesn't work. But here's what you can do. Here's where we're at. Come visit us. So this type of leadership, now we have a program, right? We, we, we just call it, you know, informally, Visitas a Enfermos, right? And it's a formal program, and we have teams of people. Noé's a leader, but we also have Ismael, Lily, everyone, all with a disability, they make a roster of who's in what hospital, nursing home, assisted living, homebound, and they go out and, and they visit folks, right? Because isolation is can be really, really dangerous, right? Living in isolation. So one of our programs that they came up with is that, Visitas Enfermo. It's a, it's a great form of leadership, and they're always bringing in, the team is growing. So there's other members of the organization that can go right as well so they do a really good job of dividing it up and making sure trying our best that no one falls behind no one is left alone um the second example um there's an individual he had a stroke uh, it affected his mobility he can walk but it very slowly uses a brace and it affected his speech he he'll have a conversation with you but it takes him longer to get out his thoughts, his words, but they're there. And then you layer the language 
right? His first language is Spanish. So one could say you have all these barriers, but Ismael, or we call him Canelo, what he's done is amazing. You can look at all these barriers that would prevent most people from going out there and being active and an advocate. But with Ismael, he's out there. Almost every meeting that we're part of, every group that we're part of, any advocacy effort, he's out there. He'll be at the meetings. He'll bring back, report back to the groups, offer suggestions of courses of actions. And he's also learning our database system, learning technology a little bit more. Right. Um, It's amazing. So now we can start quantifying. Like here's last month's reports of all the visits we did, who we visited, who was on the teams and et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's pretty amazing. So he enters everything and then he can do queries, searches, and then he can make up reports. So he's he's advancing on so many different levels politically. He's active. And then he's also using tools, technology, to to try to be more effective. So speaking of technology, for years before your current work, and even now, you've devoted a lot of your effort to ensuring that technology is accessible. What's the connection? Is there one? So before I started working at Living Hope, I worked for about five years with Progressive Technology Project. And I learned a lot there. I was starting to become a technologist, but I was more a social change, social movement person. You'll see people, you know, using apps to mobilize, which is great. Um, As we all know, mobilizing is, is, I think it's a part of social change and it's a part of organizing, but we can't just reduce it to that. You know, it's all about the face-to-face, the one-on-ones and having that connection with your community. So what we did there is we worked with about 100 different organizations and One of the first things we would do is like with everyone in the room, what do you do? What do you mean? What do you do? What's your role? Oh, don't worry about me. I just do the administrative stuff. It's like, no, actually. So when we start mapping out that person's workflow, all the different things, activities that they do throughout the day, it's hugely important. And that goes for everyone. So when you start mapping out and looking at your work, comparing it to the goals of your organization, then you start realizing that, yeah, it's we got to sharpen our workflows, you know, uh, get better at our work. And technology can help do that. But it, it isn't all that. It's just a tool to help you accomplish your goals, to do your work, right? The tool can support what you do, not the other way around. It's ultimately about your goals, about the people in the community, about the work, right? If you're not clear on your goals and your strategy and all that, you can have all the data in the world that probably won't make any difference for anything. At Living Hope, we get a lot of donations. So using technology, a really good database system right now, we're getting to the point where everyone can pull out their reports. They know the the importance of entering the data, entering it well, so we can later use that data. We can look back 2017, 2018, how many catheters did we give out? What's the average per month? Things like that. How many wheelchairs were donated? What was their value? We can actually do all that. So technology is helping us take that next step. We're accountable to our community. We produce reports for them. A lot of small organizations feel they just don't have the time to deal with technology. You know, some don't have a website, much less a database. 
But one of your key roles in the past was working with organizations to help them develop that capacity. So what kind of support did you offer them? I mean, how do organizations that are stretched to the bone start taking those steps? You always come across barriers or inertia when visits to change, right? Um, you'll hear variations of like, I don't have time for that. I'm an organizer. We're too busy and all that. When you start breaking it down, uh, I did this with the group in South Texas. They're like, well, yeah, we have all the data. We, that's not, not our problem. So I pushed a little bit more because they were like, we just don't have time for that. And I go, where's all this data? He's like, well, we have about five years worth of sign-in sheets. All these, and we're going to get to it. We're going to get some volunteers or interns to put them in Excel. But I go, so you have about five years worth of data. Yeah. Because everywhere we go, sign in, sign in, sign in. Okay, so you have five years worth of sign-in sheets. Where are they? They're in one of our offices. We have a really nice space in there, and, you know, they're nicely organized in boxes. I go, okay, so you you don't have time to do it the first time to enter the data as you're doing it or or right after, but you have five years worth of sign-in sheets of data, and someday – you'll, you know, you'll get to it. So then we started having a better conversation after that. So then we came up with some ideas of like, let's just start where you're at. If you're all using, in this case, they were using Google Sheets because they couldn't afford a Microsoft Office. We're like, great. Okay, start where you're at, right? So what's your standard format? Little things. What's your standard format for entering? Don't go name address do you want to separate first name and last name is there any other key identifier for from this event right um, yeah date and so we started simple like that so now at least you have it in, in a spreadsheet and that's what you have now you have it and you can access that information on your telephone on your tablet or on your laptop so starting where you're at right but the first thing is like getting to the point where like if we start doing a few things differently, because now you're busy and I go that, you know, being busy might be there's a big need or you're doing something right. And, and more people want to be part of this. But now how do you follow up with them? Right. How do you follow up with an email and all that? All those five years worth, of, you know, the boxes that you have, have you followed up with any of them? And they're like some of them because we see them, but no, not really. Now the whole culture change, right? The shift in thinking is like, yeah, we got to do better, um, work smarter and not harder. So once we had that culture change, a lot of things started following, right? And again, just basing it where you're at. So what's the value of um, devoting organizational resources to entering that data? Um, The value. So, for example, if I took that approach of just putting all those sheets you know, somewhere and someday we'll get to them. Now I'm trying to raise money. So I don't have access to that data. Or it isn't even just about asking for donations. What if we need help? And this person offered to help and wants to be part of what we're doing. So there's no value in just having, you know, sign-in sheets tucked away somewhere, not using it, right? So the value is you're building membership you're offering participation to those that really love what you're doing. They love your mission. So you're, you're providing an opportunity for these people to be part of what you're doing. 
And yes, you can also, um, in your fundraising, you know, do an appeal to them and more than likely they, they do want to be part of it. They will donate. There's just so many benefits to, to making that shift to using your tools that you have, using technology um, to accomplish what you're doing. It might take a little bit longer in learning the software, learning, training people, but it's worth it, right? It's really worth it. Otherwise, you know, you're not really going to grow, right? You're going to be overworked no matter what. The organizations that you worked with were fortunate to have found you um, and the group that provided technical support. Um, but on the average organization, it might feel overwhelming. So do you have any resources or suggestions for small organizations and where they could go to take that next step? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, you can do what I did. I started asking around, who's doing what? Um, then I learned also like foundation. So if you're getting any type of foundation money, have a talk with them because they know people. Or if you've been turned down by a foundation, you can still talk to them. And among the things to ask them is, you know, are, are those questions, where can we get help? There's universities, right? There's a lot of universities with really, really um, formal programs, in, in either social work, social change, computer science. There's just so many different places, but the first part is just getting out there. Once you start asking and, and researching, it'll build up. Hopefully you'll have a problem where you're going to be like, whoa, we got to just focus on one or two places because there's too many to, to think about, you know, but there are a lot of places, right? Look at your fellow organizations, right? Have a talk with them. The important thing is to start asking, start talking. If you start making a list, you'll you'll start, you know, it'll start taking shape, right? If you don't think about it because you don't think you can do it or you say you don't have time, then it's you're guaranteeing it's not going to happen. Um, then there's groups like Progressive Technology Project, Center for Media Justice, for example. Um, there's just a lot of uh, different organizations. The last thing I'll say is if you want to start something, start using technology, it could be even the Google suite, like Google Sheets, Google Docs, and all that. You may not know how to use it effectively, or you may not even know that there's a million different templates for different purposes out there. But once you start Googling that or, or searching through a search engine, you start to see that a lot of people have written those questions you have. They've written the answers and they've shared them, right? So much of it is online for free, right? But the first part is just wanting to do it and then just starting to do it. So you've shared a lot about your passion for inclusion and access, and that includes technology. And, you know, there's a kind of a buzzword called digital divide, where there's a whole swath of a population that doesn't have access to technology, doesn't necessarily have access to a computer or email. Um, and the question is, like, how relevant, how important is that is for the people that you're working with? In Houston. Yeah. So, so I'll start by giving an example. This happened uh, last week. There's a countywide meeting dealing with disaster recovery. So it's like the long-term recovery committee. And they asked me and, and, and another colleague from a different organization to go and speak. They, want, they had read our reports and they wanted to learn a little bit more. So I went to the meeting. I reported and then I stayed for the whole meeting and they had a data section. So the, the folks reported on data. I'd seen these 
cooks before. They're really nice, really, really smart about about programming and, and software and all that. I saw the presentation and then there were questions and answers. And I asked, it was a simple question. This is amazing, but everything you've presented, all this data and the tech that you're using, everything is geared towards homeowners, right? But the vast, so Houston, I go, number one, Houston's a city of renters. In other words, there's more people that rent than own in Houston, right? Then there's this whole world of like substandard trailer parks. Most of our our members live in trailers. They're renters. And this goes with any community, you know, community of color, poor community, pretty much renters, people of color, trailers. So I go, all the data that you presented is dealing with homeowners. And do you have, um, I'm not even going to ask about people with disabilities because, um, you know, I didn't see it in there. I didn't see any category. And I read the report and I go, but so do you plan on doing that? And besides, it isn't just me with the question. The New York Times a few days ago had a big article on how renters are being left out of the recovery from all these disasters. And it's true because we've seen this um, firsthand. So there was no response. There wasn't anything. And they were really cool about it, but no, they hadn't thought of it. Or they just said, yeah, we do have some data somewhere on it. and We'll try to get it out. So people that are activists, people that are from the community that live these experiences and all that, it's important for them to understand it, to either learn technology enough so you can go to these meetings and be confident enough to ask the questions like I did. Right. I wasn't like this before, but now I'll ask the question and it wasn't a bad. And people were like afterwards, they were like, that was a great question. We just don't have an answer. And we're kind of blind to those things. But if I hadn't been trained at PTP, right, if I hadn't been around all my activist organizer friends, right, if I hadn't participated in this uh, internship, POC techies, right, people of color techies, if I hadn't gone through that, I would not have had the confidence to be in that arena, to be in those meetings, right? And to ask these types of questions, right? Because I do my work, I study the issue, but I see it firsthand. Sometimes I live it. I was already, I don't know what, in my 40, early 40s. Or something. I had never turned on a computer, really. Right before I got to um, ACE, I had never turned on a computer. And I got to United Fair Freight Economy, and that's when I started learning, right? Really learning about data and all that. So talk about diversity or inclusion. And I'll be honest, I forced myself to learn it. I asked questions. I was lucky to have people to mentor me, to help me. A lot of times I have to, to use this figure, push my way in the room just to get a seat at that table so I could learn. Right. I don't know why I did that, but then, um, you know, honestly, it changed my life. Right. Because not just the tech, but it was also, you know, the confidence that comes with it. Right. So, um, yeah, I just say, let's be careful when people take courses and I took a six week course. Now I can code. But if you don't have the the grounding, the political grounding, the, the mentorship, the it's going to be hard, you know, because um, especially tech, it's a hard world to navigate in. Right. There's a lot of smart people in tech and they'll let you know that they're smart. Let me put it that way. So you have to, you know, have the confidence, right? And that comes from organizing and from being around really great mentors. Thank you for your time and good luck in uh, 
Texas. Uh, thank you for having me on your on your show. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.